I hope you uh, will open a Bible to Matthew chapter 2. So I plan to look at the first couple of verses. I uh, have a book that was a compilation of sermons by James Montgomery Boyce that were around Advent and Christmas themes. Uh, James Boyce, as you know, pastored for many, many years at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He died several years back after a long battle with cancer, and he was an excellent preacher. He was a great leader in our denomination. And I was trying to think, well, I want you to know that I got the idea of the sermon I plan to preach from that book, but almost none of the content. This morning I was here early and I, uh, I'll speak loud. Please, I love the kids to be here, seriously. You don't need to, I'll be loud. Um, the, uh, and I was looking at my phone to make sure it was turned off. And maybe it's from being up most of the night that I was staring and began to think about the, the smartphone I have, and I was looking at the app SoundHound. Y'all know what that is, right? If you ride in your car and there's a song on the radio, you uh, can hold your phone to it, and it will immediately tell you the artist, the song's name, and you can purchase it through iTunes immediately. And I began to think, well, what if we had Sermon Hound? And there's Bill Hurd preaching, and you, you hold it up, and it says, Tim Keller, purchase this sermon. <laughs> or James Montgomery Boyce. I did read a week ago that someone actually tried to calculate how much it would cost to give the gifts named in the classic Christmas song, The Twelve Days of Christmas. The grand total came to about $15,000. Some items were affordable, like a partridge in a pear tree. That was $34.99. Six turtle doves will run you somewhere around $50. Six geese a laying will cost about $150. But then the prices begin to soar. When you get to 11 pipers piping, that's $1,000. Then there are 12 drummers drumming. Current union scale for musicians, that will run you another $1,000. But the price really goes up to find 12 lords a-leaping. Now we're talking $3,000. Now granted, I don't know where you, you would find them, but I'm told they're expensive if you can find 12 lords a-leaping. In Matthew 12, we have the account, or Matthew 2, of the, of the magi coming, the wise men from the distant east. And we call them the wise men but it was real, recent translators have put the word magi, which was a title for a class, for a group. It was a group from Persia, and they come and their arrival creates quite a stir in Jerusalem. It says King Herod, it says in verse 3, was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him because they come asking, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, we have come to worship him. So let's look at just a few moments of who they were and why they came and what they did. Magi identifies them as a priestly ruling class from Persia. Now that was far off to the east of the Holy Land of Israel. I mentioned last week if you were here about the Babylonians after they had defeated the southern kingdom and they had carried so many of the Jews into exile, then 
King Nebuchadnezzar was defeated by the Persians. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, was more lenient. He allowed many, many of the Jews to return to their homeland, some 60,000 of them. But so these magi came from that country, from Persia. And they were powerful people. They had, this was a title when they were called magi. That was a, a title of, of honor. We have titles today. We have them in the church. We refer to uh, the office of elder or deacon. In a sense, that is a title. And hopefully the reality in the person's life matches the title. A person could have the title of elder but not have the characteristics or do the task of being an elder. We have titles in our country like we refer to judges as your honor. Hopefully most, if not all, are honorable, but some are not, but they're still referred to as your honor. Here, these men were called wise, and they had earned it. They truly were wise. They did not have PhDs that they had gotten in the mail. No offense to those of you that have PhDs that came through the mail. They had earned those. They deserve the titles. And so we see part of their wisdom in the way that they... They know a lot, and they know something about the king of Israel who was to come, but they don't know everything, and they're wise enough to ask about him. By the time they ask Herod, it's halfway through the story, so we can assume that they probably asked people they met as they traveled, maybe those who tended the city gates, maybe the soldiers who were there at the city entrance. Where is he? Where is the one who's born king of the Jews? And then they were wise enough to learn when they got the answers. They were wise enough to learn from others. In their own country, they were the ones from whom others sought information. They were the intellectuals of their culture. But here they are seeking information, and they come, and it's the chief priests and teachers of the law who had opened the scriptures and read that the, the Messiah was to come from Bethlehem. It read Micah 5 too, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. And so when these magi, however many there were, we don't know precisely, but what they learned as the scriptures were opened was very important. They learned that Christ was to be born in Bethlehem, so they had taken note of that. They knew that that was a nearby town. And so we can assume they were expecting probably to find this Messiah in Jerusalem, maybe even in the temple, maybe in the palace, Herod's palace, but they didn't. It's interesting that they learned as they listened to the teachers of the law. They listened to the scribes and the teachers of the law. If you look back at the passage, let me find the precise verse. Verse 4, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, Herod, that is, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. And then they quote the passage from, from Micah. They knew clearly. Now, what happened with some of these same men during Jesus' ministry? They were his enemies. But they knew the truth. There was no doubt. There was no doubt as to where the Messiah was to come from. Now, isn't it ironic? It's just a question that occurred to me as I was thinking about this this week. Why didn't those chief priests go with these men to Bethlehem? 
They knew, they knew, well, it says he's going to be born. The scriptures say he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And here are these foreigners that have traveled that far in in seeking, honestly seeking this one who was to be born. And the chief priest and the scribes right there in Jerusalem don't even go with them to check it out. Charles Spurgeon, he would flash up on Sermon Hound right now as I quote this. He said, The reason many do not find Jesus is they are not ready, they are not truly seeking him. That is because although we are far from him because of our sin, he's not far from us. So he put it this way, Spurgeon did in a sermon. He said, Usually in going up to God's house, we get what we go for. Some come because it is the custom. Some to meet a friend. Some they scarce know why. But when you know what you come for, the Lord who gave you the desire will gratify it. When a sinner is very hungry after Christ, Christ is very near to him. The worst of it is many of you do not come to find Jesus. It is not him you are seeking for. If you were seeking him, he would soon appear to you. A woman was asked during a series of meetings, How is it that you have not found Christ? And sir, she said, I think it is because I have not sought him. It is so, none shall be able to say on the last day, I sought him, but I found him not. In all cases at the last day, if Jesus is not found, it must be because he he has not been devotedly, earnestly, importunately sought. For his promise is, seek and ye shall find. These wise men are to us a model in many things, and in this among the rest that their motive was clear to themselves, and they avowed it to others. May all of us seek Jesus that we may worship him. So they were genuine seekers of the Messiah who was to, be, to have been born. Well, why did they come? They're asking this question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They're told Bethlehem to the south. But they had received the technical answer from King Herod. In fact, he had even said, go and make careful search for this one, and when you find him, come back and report it to me so that I may go and worship him as well. But they still didn't know specifically where he would be. They knew in Bethlehem, but they did not know among the people who it would be. So God gives them a reappearance of the star. If you read the passage carefully, some time has passed since that night of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. As you read this, it would appear it may be as long as a year later that the wise men, at this episode with the wise men, that they show up. Because by the time word gets back to Herod that the wise men did not return to him, but They had been given a vision in a dream, and they left. They went back to Persia with a different route. Then he gives the order to kill all those two years old and younger. So some time has passed. They had originally seen the star, and now the star reappears. And it guides them to the house, it even mentions. It doesn't say the manger. They go now to a house, and it refers not to the baby, but to the child and Mary. There's been a lot of speculation on the nature of the star. What was this star? 
Early attempts tried to explain it as a comet. Some have tried to explain it as a conjunction of two planets, Jupiter and Saturn. Though I've not been to a planetarium in December in a long time, I'm told that that's still somewhat the view that will be mentioned in December at planetariums. Some believe it was the Shekinah glory of the Lord, that the star, because it moved, was God's presence with them, even as he had done with his people in the Old Testament. But regardless, God leads them. He leads them to where Jesus is. He can use anything to to lead us to himself. But typically he uses the scriptures. When you look back at great conversions of history, whether it's Augustine or whether it was John Bunyan or even C.S. Lewis, sometimes they came to Christ what would seem to be fluke circumstances. Augustine was sitting in a garden. He'd gone to visit a friend of his, and he heard a little girl playing like in the yard next door, and she's singing a song in Latin. She says the song has a phrase, take it and read it. And he goes to his friend Olypius, and, and he points him to the book of Romans, and he begins to read chapter 14 of Romans, and he's converted. And so we come across stories like that that have unusual circumstances, but God typically always uses his word in the midst of those. Again, Charles Spurgeon. I can't say it better than he at this point. I love the way he puts this. The master fisher has a bait for each of his own elect. And oftentimes he selects a point in their own calling to be the barb of the hook. Were you busy as at the counter in a store? Did you hear no voice saying, buy the truth and sell it not? When you closed your shop last night, did you not bethink yourself that soon you must close it for the last time? Do you make bread? And do you never ask yourself, has your soul eaten the bread of heaven? Are you a farmer? Do you till the soil? Has God never spoken to you by those furrowed fields and these changing seasons and made you wish that your heart might be tilled and sown? Listen, God is speaking. Hear ye, deaf, for there are voices everywhere calling you to heaven. You need not go miles about to find a link between you and everlasting mercy. If not among the stars, then among the flowers of the garden or the cattle of the hills or the waves of the sea, may he find a net in which to enclose you for Christ. As a pastor, I get to hear testimonies of so many of you who have joined the church. I'm not in all of those meetings, but I'm in a lot of them. So I've heard hundreds of testimonies of how people in First Presbyterian Church have been brought to Christ. It is, it's one of the high points of being a pastor, to sit and listen. Um, sometimes it was in the midst of a, a tragedy, uh, going through a divorce, or the death of someone close to a person. I remember one fellow, he doesn't live here now, we still stay in touch. When we asked him to, he had gone to one of the state universities in Georgia, in Statesboro. <laughs> and when we asked him, said, what was, what was it like in college? And he summarized over four years, all he said was, I was drunk. <laughs> That's how he summarized four years. And he would travel back and forth because he had, an, he had to help with a family business here. 
And in his driving back and forth between Statesboro, he had a Bible, and he set it on the seat beside him, and he began to read it while he was driving. Because he would not recommend this, but he would read, and you know how that, on I-16, and he would, and through reading the scriptures, he came to a clear faith in Christ. And when he gave his testimony to us, that was so obvious that his life had been changed. A variety of others, um, from young, those who grew up in covenant families and could not pinpoint a time that they did not know the Savior, to others as older adults. Um, stood here before, and I think it was it, one of the other pastors baptized a man who was 78 years old uh, right here. Look at the gifts they brought quickly. They bring these gifts, and a lot of attention is given to these. I was reading some articles this week about this, that gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Why would you bring a, a baby or an infant or even now maybe a, possibly a, approaching a toddler? Uh, why not a rattle? Why not a bib? Maybe a stuffed animal, stuffed camel? Why gold and frankincense and myrrh? There's not a lot of explanation in the Scripture, but I think we can make some educated speculation. The gifts were rare, they were precious, they were expensive, they were not typical gifts for a baby. So we, we conclude that they were representative of other things that the wise men wanted to express. Gold was the usual offering presented to kings or someone whom you wanted to pay respect. So when the wise men presented gold, they were honoring Jesus with the very best that they possessed. They were recognizing that he was a king. Frankincense represents his divinity. It's a very costly gum, a fragrant gum distilled from a tree. I think there are only two countries in the world now where, and that is an endangered crop from what you may have seen this past week in the news. Frankincense was used in worship. It was burned as a pleasant offering to God. It was also used as medicine and perfume. Myrrh represents bitterness. It was an Aromatic gum obtained from a tree in the same way as frankincense was chiefly used then to prepare bodies for burial. So we assume that myrrh was brought as a gift to acknowledge the human suffering that Jesus would endure. To summarize, gold was a gift for a king, frankincense was a gift for Jesus' divinity, and myrrh was a spice for his burial. We also assume that that they brought some fairly large quantities of these, which scholars speculate funded Joseph and Mary when they had to flee to Egypt and that they needed the money and that these gifts probably went to support the family. But now let me share with you in the last point what I learned from this this week. As I studied this, what occurred to me, and had already occurred to others far smarter than I, is that these are foreigners. These are not covenant people. This is a missions passage. This is a passage at the very beginning that sounds the notes of what we have at the end of Jesus' ministry with the Great Commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. These are outside the covenant community. They are foreigners. Psalm 67 7 says, God shall bless us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. When the angel announced the 
the birth to the shepherds. He said, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And so we have that theme to reach all, all the way through the Old Testament. And now clearly in the New Testament, beginning with those original seekers, the wise men, who come, they are the ones who had the scriptures and knew those. They are the ones that had been taught. Isn't it interesting that often the people that are most responsive to the gospel are those who you would think are the farthest away from it? And so we see at the very beginning with the birth of Christ, the Great Commission, going to reach others, even as these wise men from the east came and then went back, would have gone back to their own people. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. I'll close with that, but I want to ask you to pray for one place in the world that this week I hope you read about. And if you keep up with missions and missions history, you know how critical North Korea is with the spread of the gospel. And we spent time with the session last Monday night. We had a time of prayer, and I, I read some recent articles that had just come out with the, the death of Kim Jong and, and now with his, one of his youngest sons that will be the uh, supreme ruler. Wasn't that the title they gave him yesterday? And when you look at how God had worked in that country just 100 years ago, uh, no place on the planet has seen the spread of the gospel so rapidly and so many people converted. Most of them had to flee to the south uh, back in the, the 1950s. But um, secular and religious critics see it as the most oppressive regime in the world and the starvation that goes on and uh, no allowance of it, even though even radio signals in there that take, take the gospel that, uh, that are not allowed. And so I hope that even as this year ends and as we begin the next year, that you will give special prayer for the spread of the gospel in, in North Korea. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the Great Commission. We thank you that your plan has been to bring people from every tribe and nation and tongue into the body of Christ. We see that with these wise men who came from afar, who even shame the covenant community and that their evidence of what you said in John, that he came to his own and his own received him not, that those who even knew that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem did not even bother to go and look, uh, even as these Persians did. We pray that we would recognize the brevity of our lives and help us to invest ourselves individually and corporately as a congregation in the spread of the gospel, especially to those who are out of the reach of being able to hear it now, those in Muslim countries and places that, yes, will probably cost missionaries their lives to take it to them. We pray that it would go forth in power even in our own land as we see our own country become more and more apathetic and where no longer even people asking the serious questions, no longer asking seeking questions, but just kind of resign themselves to apathy. We pray that your spirit might move in a mighty way to see multitudes brought to Christ, to see your church revived, that the gospel of Christ would be preached with power that would be evidenced and changed lives. We pray for our time with families today that you would bless that. May it be Christ-centered, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.